in session. Here's your host, DJ AAA. Tonight in Music Detention, we're going to discuss the lives, music, and tragic endings of three men who showed the music industry that black artists are not limited to the soul and R&B charts. These three men were bigger than life and they made it onto the music money list. That's the Billboard Pop Charts, where you would find artists like Elvis Presley, Pat Boone, and Doris Day but only a handful of black artists, because until these three men, it was only those few artists who had the music money game figured out. In tonight's episode, we're going to discuss three men with not only the talent to challenge the king of rock and roll on the charts, but they also had the unit sales numbers to dethrone him. And because of popularity and writer's royalties, their numbers continue to profit. These three men are Sam Cooke, Mr. Excitement Jackie Wilson, and the young phenom Frankie Lyman. Each of these three men have a story to tell, a story of what to do as well as what not to do, and what happens when you let yourself get caught up. What is common about these three artists is that they all crossed over from the R&B charts onto the U.S. pop charts and then to the UK single charts, and they managed to do this again and again. These artists, I would call the true kings of pop, Mr. Sam Cooke being the truest king of all, and then Jackie Wilson, and lastly, Frankie Lyman. Before Luther, Michael, Luther, the Temptations. I've got sunshine on a cloudy day with my girl. I've even got the month of May with my girl. Smokey. I'm just a part of the end of my road. But I can't stop trying. I can't give up. James, wow, I feel good. and even Jackie. To be loved, to be loved. Oh, what a there was Sam Cooke, the first king of pop. to the music played by the DJ on the radio the cokes are in the ice box popcorns on the table me and my baby we're out here on the floor so Mr. Mr. DJ 
Now tonight, to make the most of this class, I have a couple of things that I must do. The first is to spotlight the careers of these men and to show our young artists the importance of the template that Sam Cooke created and how that template is still relevant. Second, because of the conflicting stories concerning the death of Sam Cooke, the misunderstanding of Jackie Wilson's and the outcome of Frankie Lyman's life, we should be asking ourselves why. Because what we all want and deserve is closure. And if you're not left with that, then I failed you. Now if you're ready, let's begin. This is Music Detention. All my babies coming home tomorrow. Ain't that good news? Man, ain't that news? Babies coming home tomorrow. Ain't that news? Man, ain't that news? I got a letter just the other day. Telling me that she was on her way And she want me to meet her at the station Ain't that good news, man, ain't that news Sam Cooke had the Midas touch. With 29 singles to reach the Billboard Top 40 pop charts and 20 of those 29 singles making the top 10 in his first eight years in the business. And to be clear, we're talking the 1950s. I would say that Sam Cooke was in an exclusive club of superior singer-songwriters. And to date, I don't believe that anyone has had his level of success. Ain't that good news, man, ain't that news. Ain't that news, ain't that good news, man. I know that's good news. My baby's coming home tomorrow. Ain't that good news, man. Sam Cooke was born in Clarksville, Mississippi in 1931. And like a lot of colored people back then, the Cooke family migrated north to Chicago. Sam's dad, Charles Cooke, was a minister and Sam began his career as a gospel singer in his father's church. Sam's first real break came when he was 18 when he was asked to join the Soulsters, a touring gospel group with a list of singing powerhouses like Lou Rawls and Johnny Taylor. Shake 
Sam Cooke was first to show the world that a gospel artist could cross over and perform secular music as well. This was considered a no-no and artists feared making the jump because there was no turning back. Sam Cooke was the first to do this, though he had his reservations. In 1957, after marrying Dolores Mohawk, Sam released his first non-gospel single titled Lovable. Sam didn't place his name on the record and the record didn't do well on any of the charts, but the song did do something. Lovable showed Sam Cooke that he could write a good R&B song, and it motivated him to finally make the leap from gospel music. And this is where the story begins. Also, I need to add that as a side note, Sam's marriage to Dee Dee Mohawk was a short one. Sam Cooke's first real non-gospel song was You Send Me. This song was clever and simple. Still, as far as I'm concerned, You Send Me was more than just a simple love song. It was purposeful and it was meant to convey a man's intentions. This song could be sung by any guy, no matter his talent level, to any woman. And ultimately the response was going to be the same. I challenge you, pull the person that you want close to you and sing these songs in their ear. At first, At first I, thought I thought it was, it was infatuation, infatuation, but ooh girl, it lasted, it so, lasted long. so long. And now I find myself wanting to marry you and to take you home. To marry you she might laugh a little, but when it's all said and done, there will be no doubt in her mind. You Send Me was actually the B-side to Sam Cooke's release of the cover Summertime in September of 1957. DJs found You Send Me and began playing it, preferring it over the A-side song. You Send Me reached 1.5 million unit sales climbing to near multi-platinum status. And because Sam Cooke was also the writer, he took an equal share of the profits made from this song. What made Sam Cooke more money is when You Send Me was re-released as a cover by Teresa Brewer in 1957. The Queen of Soul Aretha Franklin in 1968 the Ponderosa Twins plus one in 1971 and the Manhattans in 1985. Each release earned Sam Cooke royalties as the songwriter. I will explain royalties later, but royalties are the common denominator for this show. You Sent Me clearly illustrates the simple concept of which remains as Sam Cooke's formula for success. Sam Cooke had a booming career as a solo artist because every song that he recorded was created to also appeal to the white listener as well as the black listener. Cooke realized early in the game that the bigger money 
was in the hands of the white audience. And this was proven when Sam Cooke was asked to perform at Manhattan, New York's famed Copacabana in 1958, a venue with a strict white-only policy. How many roads must a man walk down before he's called a man? Tell me, how many seas must a white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? Tell me, how many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? No, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer, blowing in the wind. Sam Cooke wasn't satisfied with his first performance at the Copacabana, and he worked to return, and did so in July of 1964. And that performance was recorded to make a live album. I believe that you can still get it. The album is titled Sam Cooke at the Copa. Now, I'm getting off point, so I digress. But first, let me also say this. Sam Cooke had many highs in his solo career and some lows in his personal life. The biggest is the loss of his baby boy Vincent who drowned. He was two years old and it drove a wedge in Sam's relationship with his second wife and the mother of his children, Barbara Campbell. Sam blamed himself and Barbara for not being there for his only son.
to learn more about Sam Cooke's life, check out the information on Wikipedia and the many biographies explaining Sam Cooke's life in front and behind the mic. Now let's finish this. There are two parts that I need to touch on before we reach Sam Cooke's death. And these points, I believe, are equally important. How many songs have you written? Dick, uh, I don't know, but I've written just about all I've sang. Which is uh, several hundred? Well, I can uh, estimate this way. I've been in the business now, Dick, for about six years. And uh, I haven't had a song that wasn't a hit, so I was on the charts, I think, from the time I started until now. This is an amazing record. Now, Sam, most people don't get to do this. What's the answer? Now, here's a man whose career so far is about six years old in this field, not counting what went on before. What's the secret? I think the secret is really observation, Dick. What do you I mean? Think, well, if you observe uh, what's going on and try to figure out how, pe how people are thinking and determine the, 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 the times of your day, I think you can always write something with that the people will understand. All right, now, you have a, you've solidified your own career as far as the singing and the records go. What do you hope to do in the future? You're doing different things now, aren't you? Yeah, well, now, Dick, I'm working mostly with other young singers, you know. I, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. What could be the greatest thing in the world that would happen to you if you had your choice? The greatest thing that happened to me if all the singers I'm connected with had hits. First, Sam Cooke wanted to help black artists achieve his success. So Sam started his own record label. There was Derby. But SAR Records is the label that I remember, and in 1962, 1963, and 1964, Sam began signing to promote other artists. At the same time, Sam Cooke continued writing and singing his own songs, each one because of his simple formula crossing over onto the pop charts and landing somewhere in the top 40. Let's do a little capsule version of the Sam Cooke story. How did it all happen? A little captioned version. Um, born, my father was a minister. Uh, I started singing in the church naturally because I was exposed to uh, gospel singing first night. Uh, came out of school, went with a professional gospel group called the Soulsters, sang around the country with them for about five years. Decided to go on my own, made a song called You Send Me. It sold about a million and a half copies for me, luckily enough. Sam Cooke was making lots of money, but he was still under contract with RCA Records. Sam was the writer and the artist on these records, and he was cool with how things were working until a bug was placed in his ear by a dude named Alan Klein. Alan Klein, as I understand him, has an agenda. Get Sam Cooke out of his contract with RCA and become Sam's manager. And then sign Sam Cooke to another label where Klein himself would have control over Sam's music. What Alan Klein needed to steer Sam Cooke down this different path was a big fat carrot. And that carrot is royalties. This was Alan Klein's specialty. And in 1963, Alan approached Sam and told him that he was an accountant who specialized in locating royalties that the artists might be entitled to by big record labels like RCA. And after hearing this, Sam Cooke thought that an alliance with Alan Klein would be a match made in heaven. <laughs> Man, was he wrong. If I 
Alan Klein begins by negotiating a new deal with RCA, one that would give Sam Cooke an advantage. Klein then establishes a company with a shady ownership structure, one that would ultimately take from Sam and give to him. The company is named Tracy Limited, created supposedly as a tax shelter, but Tracy Limited had roots that went way beyond that. Tracy was incorporated in Nevada in 1963, and it was incorporated there for a reason. I don't mean to cast a dim light on incorporating in Nevada. Actually, business and asset protection is kind of an interest of mine. I'm no lawyer, nor am I a specialist. Call this my disclaimer. But here are some basic advantages that I see that are relevant you can Google why to incorporate in Nevada to learn more. But here we go. With a Nevada corporation, only the directors are listed on the Articles of Incorporation. The officers and shareholders don't have to be. Now officers are the president, vice president, secretary, etc. And the directors can live anywhere. There are more in-depth reasons behind Alan Klein's process, but to keep this moving, Klein could legally move and replace Tracy Limited's officers freely without anybody knowing. And that's what he did. Sam Cooke's name was first listed as president, and as time passed, Sam's name and the original names listed as officers, the members of Sam's family, were all lowered until those names were removed from an officer's position, while Klein's name rose to complete ownership of the company. It only took a couple of years and all of Sam's royalties were being paid to Alan Klein. The question is, how is Alan Klein going to keep Sam Cooke from finding this out? Fortunately for Alan Klein, this never came to become a concern. I have one more thing to mention about Alan Klein, but I will save that for the end. Sam Cooke began to address issues with segregation and the rights of black Americans in the United States. And in 1964, Sam Cooke wrote this song, A Change Is Gonna Come. This song became a theme and almost an anthem to black people everywhere. In California, where Sam Cooke was living, law enforcement was doing all that they could 
to keep the color line present and separation between whites and minorities. The police were failing and something needed to be done. I believe that the police were desperate, maybe a little too desperate. Sam Cooke's death was an unsolved mystery. If asked how did Sam Cooke die, and depending on who you ask, the people Sam did his business with, the local police, or those who knew and loved him, you will hear a different story. But there is a constant. Elisa Borier, a known prostitute, and Bertha Franklin, manager of the Hacienda Motel, and the person said to have killed Sam Cooke. Now I will take this a little further. Maybe this will give you an incentive to solve this case. Sam Cooke was unarmed when he died. His last recorded words were, Lady, you shot me. Sam was also pretty much naked when Lisa Boyer fled from the motel room while Sam was in the bathroom. When she grabbed her clothing, she also took his, leaving only his jacket and a shoe. He was wearing those two items when he was killed. Sam had no weapon. Still, Bertha Franklin claims that she shot him three times. Three times. So the story goes, Sam Cooke meets an attractive Asian woman at a dinner club called Martoni's. They agree to go to another club called PJ's and then to the Hacienda Motel, a sleazy $3 a night place. To keep this story rated G, Sam Cooke goes into the bathroom and Elisa Boyer sees this as her best opportunity to escape. Sam comes out of the bathroom, sees the door open, and grabs the only two pieces of clothing that he has. Then he runs out of the room to the manager's office, beats on the door, and demands for the woman who he believes just robbed him. The police report says that the manager shoots a naked, unarmed Sam Cook in self-defense. If I The trial for Sam Cook's murder was five days after all of this happened. There was no investigation and both women gave their testimonies in court wearing dark glasses. Now, here's what you will not learn unless you look and I challenge you to do so. Sam Cook was beaten severely. Both of his hands were broken and his face was badly bruised. Bertha Franklin says that she also hit Sam with a broomstick. My play aunt Etta James, <laughs> that's another story, said that Sam Cook's nose looked mangled and his head looked like it had been severed from his body when she viewed him at the funeral. She wasn't the only person to say this. Walter Ward 
lead singer of the Olympics, also said the same thing. This is what I want you to walk away with. It was 1964 and Sam Cooke was a known civil rights advocate. Sam was friends with Malcolm X, Jim Brown, and Muhammad Ali. Law enforcement was trying to maintain segregation at all costs. I'll let you take it from there. We should also consider Sam's dealings with that dude named Alan Klein. This is the guy who used his relationship with Cook to persuade the Beatles and the Rolling Stones to work with him. After seeing how Alan Klein operates, Mick Jagger fought to have the rights of the early works of the Stones returned to them from Alan Klein, but he was never successful. And some people say that it was Klein that actually broke up the Beatles, my favorite black band, when I was a little kid. It wasn't Yoko, so stop hating on her. Sam Cooke's story has no ending yet, and I challenge you to finish this story. You're listening to Music Detention, and I am DJ AAA. Your Saturday night study hall with DJ Triple A. What would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song. I will try not to sing out of key. Mr. Excitement, Jackie Sonny Wilson had a great career, primarily because he had lots of friends. But when he died, he died broken alone. Let's get into this. Michael Jackson said that he had two performers that he looked up to and wanted to be like. The Godfather of Soul, James Brown. I got something that makes me want to shout. Mr. Excitement, Jackie Wilson. Come out here on the floor. Let's rock some more. Come out of here on the floor. Honey, let's rock some more, yeah. But when you get out here, don't you have no fear. Put your hands on your hip and let your backbone slip and work. Third, 
before Motown, there was Jackie Wilson. Jackie Wilson was the king of Detroit, having a list of hits as long as your arm. But unfortunately, those hits weren't written by him. I'm taking this route only to make a point that I will hold on to later. Jackie began his singing career working in nightclubs around Detroit with his cousin Levi Stubbs, who later led the Four Tops. Before going solo to do his own thing, Jackie Wilson was a member of Billy Ward's Dominoes, replacing Clyde McFadder, who left them to form the Drifters. Jackie Wilson wanted to be a star, so he sat out on his own. In 1957, Jackie met Al Green, a music publisher and manager who was already managing Della Reese, Johnny Ray, and Laverne Baker. You don't want me, it's a pain to see. Mr. Green was at the door of securing a music deal for Jackie at Brunswick Records, but he passed away just before getting it done. And this is where our story begins. Al Green was replaced by a dude named Nat Turnpool. Now Nat had a dark side, but we'll get to that. On the lighter side, Nat Turnpool knew people, starting with Mr. Motown, Barry Gordy. And at that time, Barry was a songwriter, possibly the best songwriter in Detroit at the time. Gordy needed a singer because he didn't have the voice of a singer himself. And this worked out perfect. Jackie Wilson's first hit songs were all written by Barry Gordy and Billy Davis. Say you will, say you will. 
Each of these songs made the Billboard Top 100 on the US Pop, Soul, and also the UK charts. I have name dropped six names and how they got their starts. Jackie Wilson had a total of 14 songs that were considered hits. Only two of those songs were co-written by Wilson, so Jackie had lots of help. What you can take from this is that success comes easier when you have help. I'll need to also add that success comes with a price. You better stop, yeah. Jackie had his weaknesses. First was his weakness for women, and this almost got him killed in 1961, when model Juanita Jones shot Jackie twice after learning of his affair with Sam Cooke's ex-girlfriend, Harlene Harris. One bullet took out a kidney. The other bullet could not be removed because it was too close to his spine. Jackie's other weakness was trust. He was way too trusting. I mentioned Nat Turnpool and said that we would return to him. Now Nat Turnpool took advantage of every opportunity and Jackie Wilson paid for it. Jackie only wanted to sing and get paid. That's all. He wasn't interested in the business, so Jackie Wilson gave his power of attorney to his manager, Nat Turnpool. And what Jackie didn't know about was Turnpool's connection to the mafia. In 1962, the IRS seized Jackie's home due to his failure to pay his taxes. Jackie thought that Turnpool was taking care of his business, just like many artists that only want to perform. Wilson made arrangements and he also worked to free himself from the mob. How? Jackie started performing in live shows. Both the record company and the mafia was taking the majority of Jackie's royalties. Someone to care, someone to share. But to be 
Jackie Wilson was reported to have had a heart attack and collapsed while performing in a Dick Clark oldie show at the Latin Casino in New Jersey in 1975. I, like many people, believe that it was actually a stroke. Either way, Jackie hit his head on some equipment as he fell on the floor and the impact to his head was enough to place him in a coma that lasted for eight years until Jackie died in 1984. Now here's the thing. And this is what I want to convey to all of you up and coming Biggie's, Tupac's, Jay-Z's and Beyonce's out there. Jackie Wilson died broke. So broke, in fact, that he couldn't afford a headstone to mark the grave where he was buried. And there's a reason for that. But before I go into that. I don't know what I can say about this next act. What can you say but sensational all over the world? Frankie Lyman, a 13-year-old youngster with a great way with a song, and the teenagers. Why Do Fools Fall in Love has been covered 80 times after the teenagers released it in December of 1955. There are both vocal and instrumental versions of this song, and this song has been covered by groups like the Beach Boys, Shanana, one of my favorites, and Boys to Men, and solo artists like Diana Ross, Joni Mitchell, and Mary Wells. I was going to talk about Frankie Lyman, but most people already know the Phenom's tragic story. But for those of you who don't know, here's a rundown. Franklin Joseph Lyman was 13 years old when he begged to join the premieres. A doo-wop group made up of four young men from Harlem, Jimmy Merchant, Sherman Garns, Herman Santiago, and Joe Negroni. It was 1955, and Frankie Lyman would become the band's youngest member.
Why Do Fools Fall In Love and Frankie's Success kinda happened like this. The song, Why Do Fools Fall In Love, was written by the premieres as a group. The concept was taken from a line found written in a love letter received by a friend of the group. Santiago put their lyrics into a 1-6-2-5 groove. I'll explain if you want me to. And the song was born. But at that time, Why Do Fools Fall In Love wasn't the song's title. Herman Santiago was the original lead singer of the premieres. But when the group met with George Goldner, owner of G Records, a small New York record company, Santiago had the flu and at the time he couldn't sing for the audition. Goldner asked if the little kid could sing. Frankie stepped up and delivered. The song had to be modified for Lyman's higher voice and the premieres got a record deal. But some additional changes were made. Goldner changed the name of the song from Why Do Birds Sing So Gay. The group was renamed the Teenagers and Frankie Lyman was featured as the front man. Then Goldner added himself to the writing credits, listing himself and Lyman as the song's writers on the single. The Teenagers had an 18-month run and Why Do Fools Fall In Love hit the charts and climbed to number one on the R&B charts and number six on the Billboard Top Singles chart. I cannot find the unit sales for Why Do Fools Fall In Love. Well, let me change that. I can't find the unit sales for the Teenagers version of Why Do Fools Fall In Love. But let me finish. The Teenagers had a pretty good 18-month run, releasing several hits that placed them on the R&B, Top 40 Pop, and UK charts. But things were about to change, and not for the better. In 1957, associate Morris Levy took over G Records and became the manager of the Teenagers and Frankie Lyman. Although the Teenagers were all very talented, Levy was only interested in Lyman. That was the money, and Levy set the wheels in motion to separate Frankie Lyman from the Teenagers. Promises of a Teenagers album was made to the group with new contracts, but the label ultimately canceled everything, leaving the members of the Teenagers with nothing. And because Goldner removed the names of the group members from their big hit, they would not receive any royalties. As a solo artist, Frankie Lyman was living in the fast lane, doing what grown people do, but he was only 15. Lyman had two loves, music and women, preferably older women. And then the young singer had a demon, heroin. Frankie Lyman released two solo albums that went nowhere. People still loved watching him perform, 
But the young singer's addiction was starting to take a toll on him. By age 20, the voice that brought Frankie Lyman his acclaim was gone. Bands usually tried to help Frankie by transposing his songs and dropping the key of the song down a couple of notes. But doing this a lot of times makes a song sound unfamiliar and really hard to play. So what Frankie ended up doing was lip syncing when he would perform in public. Frankie's heroin habit began to rob him, starting with his looks. The young singer had missing teeth and problems with his skin. When the shows ended and the money was gone, Morris Levy was able to buy Frankie's publishing rights to Why Do Fools Fall In Love for $1,500. Once that money was gone and there was nothing else, Frankie Lyman started stealing to support his addiction. And in 1966, at age 24, a judge offered Frankie a choice, either the military or prison. Frankie Lyman was stationed in Georgia when he met his wife, Elmira. Things were looking up for Frankie, but his desire to sing and perform was still inside him. And in February of 1968, a 26-year-old Frankie Lyman went back to New York to give the business one more shot. Frankie had worked up a new song and he had made arrangements to record it at a studio in New York. The night before, while at his grandmother's apartment, Frankie found himself in a bathroom doing what an addict does. And Frankie was found dead from an overdose of heroin. You're listening to Music Detention, and I am DJ Triple A.
Shoo me, shoo me, shoo me. Everybody, come on and clap your hands, will you? Just for me now. I like it like that. three men had a common thread. They focused on their art and not on their business. Sam Cooke wanted to help people, but he didn't help himself. He allowed himself to be guided down a path that left him in ruin. Sam Cooke didn't die broke, but he would have if Zelda Sams, his assistant, didn't stand up to Alan Klein. Miss Zelda wouldn't give Klein the copyrights to Sam Cooke's music. Those remained in her possession. Klein had control of the production of Sam's music, but that's all. If Klein could have gotten the copyrights, he would have gotten it all. Wilson and Frankie Lyman only wanted to perform. They allowed other people to manage them and take care of their business. Jackie didn't have any money when he died and he left nothing but his legend to his children. The thing is, Jackie was owed millions and those millions still had to be fought for. Fools Fall in Love is still making Frankie Lyman money and songwriter royalties. In 1981, that song peaked to number two on the adult contemporary charts, number four on the UK singles charts, number six on the US R&B chart, and number seven on the Billboard pop charts. Now here's what you might have missed. When Frankie sold the rights to Levy, he only sold his publishing rights, not his writer's rights. So he had years of royalties owed to him, just like in the cases of Sam Cooke and Jackie Wilson. 
Elmira Lyman took Morris Levy to court to fight for Frankie's share of his royalties. And that's when Zola Taylor and Elizabeth Waters were introduced and were said to also be the widows of Lyman, placing Elmira's marriage to Frankie into question. The Lyman Widows battle lasted for two years and ultimately Elmira won, earning a million and a half dollars. Before the bell sounds, allow me to end with this. Young up-and-comers, learn your craft and the business. Do not become one more in a long line of performers and entertainers that end their careers penniless. Understand how royalties are paid and own the rights to your music. The Three Kings are still making money because people are still covering their material. You won't hear many covers of an Elvis Presley or a Michael Jackson song. And at some point, that's gonna be a problem. As artists, what those two kings missed is this. It is our material that keeps us relevant. As long as people are still using our material, will always be here. Music Detention is produced by Smiley Enterprises Incorporated. Re-recordings for personal use are prohibited. For show transcripts and other useful information, go to the Music Detention website. That's musicdetention.com. We spell music with a Z and a K. There is also a Facebook page, and it would be great if you joined and became a member. Thank you so much for listening. I am DJ AAA. Join us every Saturday night for Music Detention on, on the Cool Oldies with DJ AAA.